Welcome to Employee of the Month show. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. I am relieved to start off 2014. 2013 was a fantastic year for the show. We were at the Bell House in Brooklyn. We were in Los Angeles, and we were mainly at our Heart and Soul, which is Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, and we're now starting to go to Joe's Pub for the live show, and I strongly encourage you coming. If you are in New York, that next show will be January 8th. It was thrilling to have the podcast mainly taped at the Writers Guild of America, sometimes in people's houses, other times in people's offices, and on very rare occasion in a bus stop. It, we never taped it in a bus stop, but it felt like that at times. I'm, I'm just so grateful to all of the people who come on the show and share their experiences and what it's like to be them, to, to work, um, to have strange neuroses, and um, to see the world in a very unique way. And that's why I'm thrilled to kick off 2014 with Maria Popova. The New York Times has referred to Maria Popova as the mastermind of one of the faster growing literary empires on the internet. She is under 30 years old and has what many refer to as a, a blog, which I feel like it just doesn't fully express or explain how beautiful Brain Pickings is or what's at the heart and soul of it. Brain Pickings is her baby. I don't, I don't know what else to call it outside of um, the most fantastic literary magazine I've ever read. It's as beautiful as The New Yorker, and you can subscribe to her Twitter feed, you can check out her blog, you can subscribe to the newsletter. There's so many different ways to log on to get inspiration. She often will look at how various literary heroes or scientific philosophers have looked at life and, and draw from them as to, to what we can draw in our own lives. She'll do very funny things like look at the accents in Europe, <laughs> like weird accents and create a very beautiful map of it. And yeah, I feel I feel that the closest reference for me is The New Yorker, although clearly with its own voice that is truly hers. And she loves design, science, literature, psychology, but not necessarily pop psychology. And there are references to things going on in the world, be it Occupy Wall Street when that was big or, you know, the anniversary of Carl Sagan's passing. I can't explain how much of an inspiration she is to me personally, but I think once you hear from her, you will know why she will be an inspiration to you as well. Here's my interview with Ms. Maria Popova. I'm so excited to be sitting with Maria Popova and who is the creator of Brain Pickings. Um, I, I couldn't afford Bitcoin, so I got you something else instead. Oh, um, let's see. As that's someone who's only ever won two things <laughs> in her life. This is, is that true? Disproportionately exciting to me. Is this really the second thing you've ever won? Yes, it is. It is. I'm really excited. And those are those are my version of Oh my of god, Bitcoins. tell me these are edible. <laughs> yes, they are. They're very edible. There it is. <laughs> More chocolate than I've had in 10 years and I'm still looking forward to <laughs> oh, it. Oh good. I w- I was <laughs> nervous because I know you're a serious athlete and so I didn't know if you ever oh, indulged. Oh, it's the holidays. Okay, I good. Indulge. My new year's resolution is to be more flexible. So Is there that it is. right? There it is, my gold medal starting out. <laughs> is, is my version of, of the closest thing I can get you to virtual currencies is chocolate coins. Um, how did you get into bodybuilding? <laughs> I didn't really get into it so much as I fell into it. Um, I was always very athletic, and when I got to college, my RA and the... Resident advisor. Advisor on the, on the building sort of floor was like, oh, you know, well, you have a six-pack, so you should compete in the show. It's like a bodybuilding show. And 
I thought she was crazy. Um, but I, at the time, I was going to school at, at UPenn, and Penn is the only, to this day, university in the world that has a professional bodybuilding show um, that is its own. And I was not really sort of relating to people. I was, it was my freshman year. I was coming from Bulgaria, you yes. know, into this very privileged school. I was working four jobs and just not relating. And so I went to the informational seminar, I guess, for the bodybuilding thing. And I just really liked the people. They were just such down-to-earth, chill, interesting people that happened to be really into this very disciplined sport. You know. It's so. I mean, there's so many things. Like, first of all, the idea of someone at UPenn with a six-pack that's not beer is already, <laughs> <laughs> is, is already amusing to me. And then I would imagine that people who are into bodybuilding but are at this very fine university have to be interesting people because it's not two things mm. you – the combination is not something I would associate. Well, like, it, you know, it's interesting because I think bodybuilding is one of the – first of all, a lot of people don't know what bodybuilding is and they think it's weightlifting and all sorts of physical exertion, but it's really a practice of discipline. Bodybuilding is about discipline. It's not about a performance per se. Um, and I think it's one of the sports that really draws people from all walks of life because – with the exception of professional bodybuilding, which is all the people with the drugs and that crazy world, which is its own world, what's um, known as the amateur bodybuilding, which is what I competed in, which most people who do bodybuilding sort of in the country do that, you know, that's for people who have whole different lives outside of that hobby or that sport or that, you know, whatever you want to call it. And so it's a very interesting cross-pollination of all kinds of different sensibilities and, and, you know, ways of viewing the world that converge around this really particular thing. Is it a, a vanity by any, by any means? Some people interpret it as that because what you see from the outside is the physique, right? So you see the shell of it. But what really produces the physique is the enormous discipline and dedication and thoughtfulness that goes into Basically, your body is a canvas for testing out what you can commit yourself to and, and stick with, really. Um, and, and that's also one of the reasons why I stopped competing, that I don't necessarily like the competition aspect of it and being judged and sort of the physique part of it. But I, the discipline has stayed with me, and I still work out and eat pretty much the same way that I did 10 years ago. Which is what? Which is I work out at least once a day and I eat fairly clean food. I read that you uh, work on a, a wobble board sometimes. Is yes. that correct? Yes. So how do you focus? Because I, I, I've had A.J. Jacobs on the show and he, he um, is wonderful and he did this year of um, trying to be the healthiest person in the world. So he created a desk on a treadmill. <laughs> and I was just curious how people do that, that, that I can see how the energy and excitement from not sitting allows for creativity to flow, but I was wondering logistically how it I works. I didn't know that that's the case for me. Okay. It's not, uh, you know, all these things sound so quirky. Oh, you know, working on a wobble board and standing, and it's so trendy now to work standing. But for me, I had really, really annoying and after a while intense lower back pain from sitting, working and sitting. And standing alleviated that. And I actually, I did the 
uh, 23andMe uh, testing and all, all, luckily all my things are within norm and my only risk that's above average population is for uh, a circulatory thing, um, some sort of thrombosis which is exacerbated by sitting which I only found out after I'd gone through years of not really liking the sensation of sitting. Should we stand? Um, We're sitting right now. Should we stand during this <laughs> no, interview? No, I can have my daily dose of sitting, okay. you know, a little bit. But, uh, and so I started working standing, but what, what I found what was happening was that I was constantly placing my weight on just one leg, and usually the right leg. That only sort of torqued my spine and just made it worse. And so the wobble board, what it does is that First of all, as soon as you have a single touch point, even if it's one finger in the keyboard, you're perfectly balanced. You don't actually wobble. It's just physics. It's very balanced. But it also forces you to distribute your weight completely evenly in both feet and both legs because otherwise you do tip over to one side. And so it's actually for my spinal alignment. It's not any kind of exercise. It's just it doesn't require any effort. It just forces you not to, you know, contort your, your spine and your weight. Um, the other thing I was so intrigued by, so many of my friends from college are, are first-generation immigrants. And even though they're from so many different countries, from Malawi to China um, to Iran, they share a discipline that I would say is not evident in myself and in um, other peers who are second, third, fourth, fifth, hmm. you know, who've been here longer. And I was wondering if, if you felt that way at all. Um, you mentioned you know, coming from Bulgaria to UPenn and not fitting in necessarily with the culture? Well, it's interesting because I think certainly in the United States, there's much more of an athletic culture, especially now in the last maybe 30, 40 years. Every child since middle school, if not earlier, has rushed into some sort of team sport and extracurricular. And, you know, when they apply to colleges, they're all athletes and of some variety, you know. And I think it's much more institutionalized here to actually have those team sports and discipline and all those things. So I don't know if, I mean, there might be other aspects of a disciplined life that are maybe stronger in other countries, but I would say as far as athletics is concerned, it's so much more prevalent here. I meant more in terms of work ethic, Mm. that um, most of my friends who are first generation um, were more mindful about uh, getting... um, they were savvier about making money. They were just, I mean, they were more like how I think of my grandparents. Hmm, interesting. They were more resourceful. I haven't thought of this. Um, one thing that I have noticed is that in Eastern Europe is very much sort of science-oriented, and I went to a specialty math middle school, which was, you know, you apply to it, and you do. And when I was 13, I was doing math stuff that is college level here, you know, and I, granted, I have not touched math since, so I've probably lost most of it, but it's, and I was no exception, this was sort of normal for people to, and a lot of Asian cultures too are very science oriented, so I think that does play a part, but I also think it backfires, because you, if your parents, I was fortunate in the sense that my parents never pushed me to do anything, they sort of encouraged me, and occasionally my mother has a mother tends to guilt trip me into doing things. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> um, but uh, I think if you do get pushed into these things or into anything too far, it can actually make you rebel by wanting to not have discipline and wanting to you know, do all these crazy 
things. Yes, yeah. I was curious to hear about Bulgaria, because I, I, I apologize, I don't know much about it, but in the Soviet Union, my friends who came there and family who came from there were uh, really encouraged to be so cultured and, and literate in so many ways. Um, and I didn't know if that was, that is definitely not common in the U.S. You mm. know, even knowing more than one language or reading for the sake of reading, um, regardless of socioeconomic class, to yeah. some degree. I mean, obviously these things are all relative. In any generalization I'm making here when I say <laughs> first-generation immigrants are all like this. Like, these of are course. all. But within that, um, there was a great emphasis on, on culture. Yeah. So Bulgaria was never part of the Soviet Union, but yes. I think the same sensibility was there. But one interesting thing, um, I was recently reading the diaries of Maria Mitchell, who is the first female astronomer, first um, female employee of the U.S. government. She was doing nautical calculations. She was just an amazing woman. And she was also a very prolific diarist. And by the time she was 40, she was one of the most, the best known scientists in the world. And so she ended up touring Europe and eventually going into a bit of Russia. And in one diary entry, she talks about how she was on the train in Russia with um, four women, a mother and her three daughters, all of whom spoke English. And they were talking to her about their education and what they were interested in, and she just found herself, I mean, there, there she is, a brilliant scientist, brilliant scholar, amazing woman, feeling completely embarrassed by the fact that in her culture, you know, these women outperform, first of all, women of their age in America, but also even her own knowledge. of I mean, they all spoke three languages. She yes. said they spoke French, German, English, and their native Russian. And they were able to converse about different poets and, you know, things that are considered, I guess, specialty. I guess the point she was subtly making was that America is the land of specialty occupations. Yes, and, you know, absolutely. <laughs> the Renaissance model of I mean, liberal arts education began in Russia, you know, in the beginning of the 20th century, that model for the liberal arts. And I think there's still residual differences in that regard. I was wondering if you feel like a perpetual liberal arts student because you are, are an expert at being a generalist. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, I, what I do always has two components, and they're always sequential like that. And it's learning and then teaching, or learning and then sharing the process of that learning. Um, so it is all about perpetual learning. And it actually all began within the confines of the liberal arts institution that I went to and I felt kind of let down by academically, intellectually. And it just became the record of what I wanted to learn about. So it has this commonality with the liberal arts, but it's also, I guess it has the, the freedom of subjectivity. I, I was going to ask you, I mean, you know, you have, you write on brain pickings. Here we, I mainly focus on science and uh, psychology and art and design and literature. You know, you have sort of categories that you'll that people can really gravitate towards if they have a particular interest in those areas. But it feels like this beautiful magazine that you've created and that it Thank comes out you. each week. You know, I was curious for you if you ever uh, have mortality issues where you don't get to keep it because <laughs> the web is ephemeral. Well, I guess the web is ephemeral, but at the end of the day, what I do is still for an audience of one. It's still for me, and what I retain in my head is enough for me. And it's lovely that all these people have sort of tagged along, and it's really heartening to me to you know hear from 
some artist who says, oh, I never thought of myself as science-minded, but now I'm reading, you know, Carl Sagan. That's great. But what stays with me is what I've absorbed and the dots that I've connected and my understanding of, I guess, as, as cheese as it sounds, that's what it all comes down to, the meaning of life. Why are we here? You know, what matters and why? You know, and, and that no one can take away. And then, of course, in very uh, petty and practical terms, Brain Pickings was actually included in the Library of Congress Archive of Culturally Meaningful Material, whatever that means. So they're recording something. I have no idea on what and how it lives, but it's somehow being archived. Well, that makes me happy because, you know, on one level, I was sort of asking about a, a, a vanity that I stopped doing stand-up and started writing because I liked that I could hold on to it a little mm. bit longer. <laughs> you have a great show and then it's, it's over. And I could, I could keep that memory through seeing my name in print. Yeah. Um, mm. And so part of it was just a, a vanity question where you have a much more zen outlook. You're much more mature than I am. And you're like, you know what? That's okay. We- well, that's my <laughs> aspirational self. It's not always my experiential self. I get, you know, inordinately excited to be on this show or to, you know, have things that are somewhat ephemeral in nature but are really wonderful. So. Testaments. Yeah, I think yeah. that they take over as the rituals. We live in such a secular culture that mm. these become sort of um, the touchstones for us and the rituals that we have um, hmm. as modern people. And, yeah. and you know, where, where the sort of family traditions are not quite as important, or uh, for me, Judaism, for someone else, the church, whatever it is, those things have less social significance to to me. But then, okay, I'm on this podcast, or I've been on, you know, for you, you know, Forbes 30 under 30, or whatever. They, they, I think they serve some type of um, Well, it's a similar purpose. Yeah. It's a similar purpose. Religion affirms that we exist and that we matter, you know, and that's what all these other things do as well. Actually, this morning I wrote about, or yesterday, I guess, I wrote about um, Carl Sagan. He died 17 years ago today, and, and one of my favorite, favorite, books of his was actually posthumously published. It's a collection of his lectures that he gave at the uh, University of Scotland, the Gifford Lectures, which is this famous sort of um, series on natural theology, and many famous philosophers have spoken there. And when he died, his widow, Androyan, collected the essays, the lectures into essays. And it is essentially about science and spirituality and what is religion, what is God, is there God, and how does science relate to it? And, you know, by and large, science is very much atheistic in nature, but it's also very much about wonder and awe, which is the foundation of all religion, essentially, that sensation. And it just, I'm, I'm very interested in that because I think ultimately our biggest fear as humans is that we don't matter. And everything that people do from, you know, creating a magnificent piece of art to having a child to even in some very warped and distorted way a terrorist performing an act of terrorism, all of these things are some form of grasping after wanting to matter, wanting to change the world to your liking or to a way that impacts it, basically, with which your existence impacts it. And um, having those touchstones, as you call them, it's it's little reminders that we exist and that we matter. We're not just, you know, the, the frivolous stroke of some creator or a bunch of atoms that dissolve one day and go away. How did you figure out how to um, run a business? You're such a phenomenal intellectual hmm. and um, really gifted at creating this magazine. And it doesn't mean that people can't have additional gifts. Obviously, you're obviously a 
uh, quite talented as an athlete as well. But I was so impressed that um, someone who has such a beautiful aesthetic and um, love of culture and intellect was is also quite savvy um, in creating a self-sustainable business. Well, I don't know if I'm savvy. Uh, (laughs) I've been somewhat successful in it, but the business part has always been a byproduct. I mean, I've been doing this for seven years. The first five years, I was flat broke. And when I actually, when I moved to New York in 2010, which is not that long ago, I could not afford the security deposit for my apartment. I was $80 short after I took all of my savings out of my savings account. And then I went to an ATM next to, you know, I took $80 out of the ADM, I put it back into my checking account and gave the check to my landlord. That's how broke I was. Oh, and on top of that, I had student loan, I had credit card debt, you know, the usual. So, and I didn't at that point think of brain pickings as a business at all. And I never did. And I still don't. I like that there's now finally, I mean, I think it is so soul crushing to live in a constant sense of insecurity and instability and having to worry about very basic things. So I'm really relieved not to have to do that anymore. But the fact that it's, there are some, I guess, I don't know if I would call it savviness, but there are deliberate decisions that I've made since the beginning, which is, for example, not to have advertising. You know, I never wanted to be that. I think there's a lot of distortion that happens with public knowledge and public information when there's a third-party commercial interest involved. By the way, this podcast is brought to you by Goldman Sachs and Advisor. (laughs) 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 And that's why it's such high-tech and (laughs) high-quality. That's why we're sitting in velvet seats right now. We're actually in the sky doing this podcast. (laughs) We're We're swimming in bitcoins. (laughs) Chocolate bitcoins. (laughs) Artisanal bitcoins, by the way, Um. because um, they're also local and organic and farmed by, by young children, but they were white, so it's fine. Um, I'm totally teasing. We are at the, the Writers Guild, and I do want to thank them for allowing us to be here. That, that did um, inspire that, since I am also a starving artist right now, and um, appreciate the Writers Guild making this space possible. Yeah, I think it is so important for, I wouldn't call them unions in the trade sense, but collectives to exist and to support each other and to support the people who care about the same things. And in a way, I think a lot of the reason why Brain Pickings has been able to be what it is, you know, and, and also have some sort of financial stability now is that it's all relationships. And I don't mean networking. I mean, people, you know, that years ago I reached out and I said, I love what you do. I want to support it in however I can. I can't do it financially now, but maybe we can have something that you know, cross-pollinates audiences and similarly people that reached out to me in the same way that it's just um, sort of mind-melding that happens and you find your people and you find your tribe and you form this sort of um, implicit guild of of, uh, sensibility and and idealism or whatever you want to call it. And I think that's powerful stuff. Tell me about your tribe. I want to hear about uh, a week in your life because you you run this site and you produce... Uh, tweets every day as well as blog posts every day on so many different topics. So I just, if you, I imagine every day is somewhat different, but wanted to hear just about this past week. Hmm. Well, first of all, I live in a sort of groundhog day on repeat. It's not that much different. Okay. <laughs> uh, and that's part of it goes back to the whole point about discipline, and it's what enables me to sustain what's 
kind of an, an unsustainable amount of stuff, you know. The amount of reading and writing that happens in a given day, it's, it's a lot. And if I didn't have it structured, I would, it would probably fall apart. Or at least I fear that it will. And that's a conversation for me and my therapist. <laughs> but <laughs> We can have that who, conversation, Who am I too. can now afford, thanks to brain pickings? <laughs> I tell you, I want to always submit for my friends who are going into the see the therapist. I'm like, well, can I just submit a couple of my issues? And if you guys have time left over. Oh, I just, love that. <laughs> just go over these. That would be great. You have a um, proofreader. I have a, my proofreader was the first luxury I could afford mm -hmm. after a server. I had to upgrade my servers a couple of years ago because they were just crapping out, you know, all the time. So I got nice servers. Then I got a proofreader. And as of recently, I have an assistant uh, because the volume, the, the demand that comes for, for time and attention, you know, I, I love being able to give back to people that actually like students could reach out to me or you know I love wanting to be able to do that but in order to be able to do that I have to even see those emails or those notes and and it's there's just so much that I don't see a lot of it and other things too that I should that I just should not have to be dealing with if I want to stay sane like coordinating travel or doing I mean this is like so ridiculous first world problems you know complaining no they're not about they're actually not first world <laughs> problems they're, they're business problems and I think what what's hard as an artist is realizing that you have these logistical issues that need to be taken care of and that time is money and you're not using your um, time advantageously for the work that you're trying to put out when you're spending inordinate time doing other things right I just I guess that's how I look naively it believe on some level that it's makes me a worse person to do that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I am in the process of deconditioning this belief so that I can actually continue doing what makes my heart sing and not what makes it sink, you know, which is all that stuff, right. you know? And so now I even have an assistant, which so far, two months, has been fantastic. She's wonderful. How did you find your assistant? Because I was going to say the one thing that I imagine is very challenging is when you're so smart, you need someone who's equally quick, Mm. And I was wondering how you how you fielded for that. So I was resistant to the idea for a long time because I couldn't get over the short-term time investment that it would take to train someone versus the enormous long-term benefit. I just I was spread so thin that I couldn't even allocate enough time to train someone to do what I I'm would right need them to right do. I'm right there right now, by the way. <laughs> well, it, it is a real hard place to get out of because it just, it's like a catch-22 that's constantly on repeat, you know? But, um, and I, I get a lot of people approaching and offering, you know, their help. Um, but ultimately, you know, everything in my life from my dentist to... Great teeth, you know, by the way. For, oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, every, everything is from friends' recommendations. There's nothing that I've looked for, no sort of service, no sort of even product that I've just blindly taken. And so my assistant, Lisa, has been the assistant of someone I love and trust for 18 years. So it was that part was just so easy. You know, the trust part is automatically done. But she's also been dealing with administrative things and logistical things for a long time and has relationships with different, you know, things that help with that sort of services. And she just knows what she's doing. Um, so in a way, she, she, I outsource expertise to her, not just time, you know, because these are things that it would take Absolutely. me a million years to try to figure out how to do, yes. even very basic things. Um, 
And so that's how it happened, you know? I, I think it's kind of like love. You date unsuccessfully or you you know, resist the notion of dating to begin with for a long time, and then you meet someone who just is right, and then it just clicks. Yeah, it, feel, it, it ends up being much easier mm. than you thought it would be. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you do a lot of other projects in addition, or you'll do collaborations with other people along the way. So that's yes. partly when it, we were going through your day. So we started out, you, you have, get seven and a half hours of sleep. You have an assistant, you have a proofreader, and you have a server, which is not a person, right? <laughs> My butler. <laughs> You're like, I first invested Breakfast, in a server. Breakfast, please. <laughs> like, well, that's kind of a luxury. I mean, I think that might qualify as a problem. <laughs> first because problems. my old one crapped out. Uh, I think that's not a good, not a good former server to have had. It's like, I mean, you see that as an adult. The administrative stuff I see as a real skill. Um, um, most of my long farm book stuff I, I do at the gym and I do all my audio there so I would do weights first listening to four or five different podcasts including employee of the month I listened to I listened to the Rachel Maddow interview this morning which is so fantastic and I love her so much um, she's so gifted at uh, being the smartest person in the room and not making anyone else feel that feel, way. Or, or also... <laughs> I mean, sorry, yeah, not, not feeling not that, feel that, small, not, that's I mean, what I meant. Uh, you know, it's so interesting. I, I was thinking exactly that, that I think there are two types of people, and one is the person who elevates themselves by stepping on other people, and the other is the person who elevates themselves by elevating others and just rising together. And she's very much that. She's a celebrator and... I just, that's what I mean about the mind meld and the tribe. Like, you find those spirits, those people, and you know, these are your people. These are at least who you want to be, you know, and it's so important to, I think, celebrate and cultivate those connections. You certainly fall into that same category where you make things accessible, and that's what, you know, is so infectious about Rachel Maddow is that she makes uh, minutia that maybe either I would think would be too difficult for me to understand or I would not spend the time understanding she makes it completely yeah. accessible so I'm interested in it and I will happily say the exact same quality is is within you and, and oh, is you. captured in your work um, something like science would have felt too intimidating to me and I would say I don't know this but you make it accessible and it, it's really an art form I don't know if it's an art form or just a byproduct of being I guess a sort of curious outsider, which is what I am to all the things that I write about. You know, I'm not an insider of almost anything. You know, I'm, a, I'm an outsider who's curious enough to understand and then record and make sense of. Um, I think Rachel is much better and different in the sense that she is also an expert, <laughs> but helps, you know, on top of explaining to the, us, the common people, she also knows more than us. And I don't necessarily know more than anyone else who would have read the same book. I just go through the labor of reading it and digesting it. And Okay, that's where I'm going to get a little confused. So I completely get it with Rachel. She's absolutely you know, an expert in, in particular areas in, in politics and government. And then generally because she's just been involved in these issues for so long that probably on almost mm. any area, I imagine she has a, a certain level of expertise that far outweighs 99% of the population. But in your case... I would imagine that you are um, quite literate. <laughs> You're reading so many books. Um, and speaking of them, do you, do you not feel a sense of expertise there? 
Well, there are certain subjects that over the years, just by virtue of reading more and more about them, I, I know more about in terms of understanding, but I wouldn't call it expertise. So they're not even subjects. They're m- most often people. Tell me why curating is a troubled term, because I, I, I really was intrigued. You had talked about um, not wanting to be a content creator. Curator. Curator. Well, first of all, content, I think it's so... Uh, off-putting when we refer to writing as content, you know, what are, what are we filling with this content? It's like garbage bins, you know, fill it with the content, you know, it's, it's really about shaping the container in the mind that contains it, you know, that's what it should be about. And the content is just this commodification of knowledge and information and, and point of view that's just disgusting to me, you know, and um, as far as curation goes, I think We've deviated so far from the original concept of it in, from an artistic, you know, museum standpoint, which, you know, a curator used to be someone who puts together a show that has a point of view that consists of these different pieces that are strung together by a narrative and by a framework of sense-making, you know. And now everybody with an Instagram feed is a curator of life. And granted, there are some fantastic Instagram feeds that are, I guess, curatorial in nature, that they, there is a consistent narrative and sensibility that you get from this person, you know. But by and large, we apply it to assemblage, we apply it to aggregation, we apply it to all these ways of handling content. <laughs> that to me is just so frustrating. The other thing that's confusing is if you have to post a certain amount of times during a day or something like that and say, I'm going to post 30 posts and I'm going to do 75 uh, Twitter posts or, or whatever it is, is it, I think the confusing part and the tricky part is when people start doing that because they have to fulfill a quota mm. versus that they have something to communicate. And so it's the reason I can't stand you know, cable news for the most part. Mm. That there's a need, they have to, they have all this airtime that they have to fill. And so people are constantly posting things, but it's not because there's something that they want to communicate? Well, it's because there's something that they want to sell, which is the, the fundamental reason why this is the case with airwaves and with web pages is that advertising is still the currency by which media is funded. And so a lot of what people call content is really that. It's like a vehicle for advertising. It doesn't really matter what the substance is. It's content. So it's monetizable because it's filling, you know, pages or, you know, it's drawing click-throughs and it's same with, you know, airtime. You have to sell, you have to have some something to sell advertising against, you know. And ultimately, I think that is not in the public interest. The media today, commercial media are not in the public interest. They're in commercial interest, you know. And with the exception of things like public radio, which, you know, for as long as they've existed, have been funded through patrons. You know, brain pickings is, I guess, most similar to public radio or, I guess, libraries in that regard in that it just is funded directly through the people who find value in it. And it's optionally so. So it's not that every time the page loads, they're forced to pay because that's essentially what's happening with traditional ad-supported media. Every time you load a page, you pay. You pay with your being there, and that's what's being sold. No matter what's on that page, you're paying for it, you know? Yes. Now, let's go. I keep interrupting you rudely. You're, so you're at the gym. You've listened to four or five podcasts, which I would have only managed to listen to one. But Oh, not at a time. Not at a time. I, I have a okay, stable good. of four or five that I only <laughs> listen to, but I do one per morning, basically. Okay. 
What are the ones you've mentioned so kindly, Employee of the Month? What are the other ones you love? Um, Design Matters. Is that by Debbie Millman? Yes. Um, Radio Lab. There is a fantastic um, mindfulness teacher named Tara Brock. Oh, I love her. Oh, yeah. She's changed my life. She saved my life. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) I love her. I donate to her monthly. I have recurring donations to her site. (laughs) This is the first Uh, time I'm going to cry on the podcast. I'm so happy. (laughs) How did you discover her? Actually, through an ex of mine, (laughs) uh, to whom I remain very grateful for it. but and she keeps coming up. It's so strange. She like I I would be talking to random people and mention her and and, and people's faces just lighten. Did and my soften. face just light up? Yes. Jad Abumrad's gonna be on the the podcast at the live show at Joe's Pub, um, of, of Radio Lab. But uh, I would love to have Tara Brock on at some point. Oh my God, that would be phenomenal. She. So what's interesting is I have two friends who saw her as a therapist. Wow, she stopped and practicing a while ago. Yes. Yeah, and her husband. And a former boss also saw her. And also her husband's supposed to be fabulous. Jonathan? Yes. Yeah. Huh. But I just think she's um, so uh, down to earth. Well, that's the thing. So what you were saying before about She's a mindfulness science. teacher, I should tell people. You know, she teaches people about, uh, how to meditate and gives these beautiful Dharma talks that are free. But they're secular. They're not religious in no. nature. They're very sort of philosophical and practical at the same time and 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 just so life-changing you know and uh she, she does that is my therapy for by the that way. it is it was my therapy for a long time <laughs> until i could actually afford therapy but now i still uh, you know she does one per week and yes. so i listen faithfully and i have two meditations that i like that i do every day you know one of the two when do you uh, meditate uh first thing after i wake up Okay, me too. So, so you didn't put that in your schedule. Yes, I forgot that. I forgot <laughs> that's that. what I was that's, asking. That, that I guess that's stuff. my private uh, <laughs> schedule, not my professional we're, schedule. We're, we're getting all the dirt here, all the salacious <laughs> all, details. All the Buddha's dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> I didn't want to reveal this before, <laughs> but I prefer green tea to ginger. Yeah, this is... <laughs> True story. <laughs> Do you ever feel isolated? Uh, Solitary? No, I actually crave that. I don't feel like I have... It's like what Susan Sontag wrote in her diary, which was really a quotation from Nietzsche or Kafka or someone else, but that one can never be alone enough to write. I think that's absolutely true. You, were t- you had spoken before about not doing advertising, and then mm-hmm. I felt like I cut you off before you got to no, say no, that, that's secrets. Um, there, it, it's interesting because in the last few years... Um, so I write a lot about books, and I signed up for the Amazon has this affiliate program. Yes. Um, which has been a great windfall gain because, actually, I was surprised and delighted to find that my readers are actually readers. They're people who read books, you know. Well, the book, the, that's what's so interesting is that the book industry, for lack of a better term, is doing mm-hmm. fine. And it's just that the way the model has changed, that most of us are going to Amazon to buy them because it's yeah. cheaper. Yeah. But it's not that people aren't reading. Yeah, and you know, people, the Amazon gets so much hate, and some of it I understand, you know, in terms of the independent bookstores, and I understand that, but also, in my view, the reader should come first, always, always, the interest of the reader. And so if someone can get to that reader in the middle of nowhere, anywhere in America, any book in the world, in two days or less, as far as I'm concerned, that's fantastic. And until someone else can offer that... 
I'm more than happy. And the, the thing, too, is that when I write about books, I have a link to Amazon. I also have a link to the public library. WorldCat, which is a great, it's, uh, it's the catalog of, the global catalog of libraries. So it automatically points you to your nearest local public library. And I have a lot of readers who can't really afford books or prefer to take no. them out of the library. And, you know, that's great. So I think it's important to give people choice. But the other thing with Amazon that a lot of people don't realize is that right now it is the largest and most well-stocked used bookstore in the world. I get practically all of my rare and used books on Amazon. And these are individual sellers who sell there. And they're, they actually, I mean, I, as far as I understand, it's not the same setup as other as the primary books on Amazon. So when it's a third-party seller, they keep most of their profits and it's they have the Amazon marketplace which is for independent sellers it's like a different ecosystem and um, a lot of them actually are better off because they have no overhead for having a physical retail store and they sell used books on Amazon you know and so if someone buys a book that they I'm just gonna do an example so you know the other day you wrote about Jane Austen mm. and so if someone goes and they go and buy Northanger Abbey through your site on Amazon, mm -hmm. then do you get a, a... I get a percentage. Get a I percentage. Get, it's like a, I think the program is something like 5 to 10%. Okay, but so let's say I bought a... a 5 to 8. A $3.49 version. Yeah, I would get three a cent and a half. Okay, so then in that sense, it's not really a kickback. That's more like a nudge. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but you know, it adds up and, and, and even... Sometimes, I, it's funny, I get emails from readers all the time saying, do you know that there's an Amazon affiliate program? You should sign up for it. And I'm like, thank you. I, I do. Uh, I remember you got a little bit of flack for it on the internet, and I thought it was, um, in my head, I immediately assumed it was sexist, first of all. That's how my uh, head works. And well. then, <laughs> no, totally, I didn't say it was rational. I didn't say any of my, my ideas <laughs> are based in logic. But that was, my, I was like, well, this is crazy. Would they do this? And, but, but I'm really grateful you, you do that because you are supporting a really important um, part of Amazon, which is which is bringing literature out. Which is their loss leader, actually. Yeah. Amazon is not really a bookstore. You know, it was a bookstore once upon a time, and now it's not. It's sort of this side business for them selling diapers and whatnot. I know, you know? I know. But yeah. I, I have to get, I get all my books through them in Audible. Mm. Because Audible, I have a monthly subscription. So yeah, I tried, things. I tried audiobooks, but not being able to take notes killed me. And I, and I, it made me also realize the difference between reading as a reader and reading as a writer, and it's just profoundly different. I just, I can't do audiobooks. Tell, tell me, tell me about that difference for you as a writer. Well, the first thing for me is searchability and and being able to find the thoughts you had at the place in the book where you had them and to record that. And sometimes, so for example, with podcasts, right? I, as I said, I love listening to podcasts, but if I want to take something down, like a note to myself on a podcast, I use the ghettoest system in the world, which is, I... No, not to be confused with the most ghetto system. The ghetto <laughs> is actually even more ghetto. Um, I take a screenshot of that time on the, on the iPhone, of the player, I email that, that screenshot into my Evernote, and in the body of the note, I write whatever note I want to myself. And then when I get home, because I usually listen at the gym on my computer, I drag the audio file into the same Evernote. And then, because it's, it, anyway, the Evernote helps with that whole thing. But basically, it requires six steps and a million different tags and searches 
was basically a stroke of a highlighter, you know, in a right, book. Right. So that did not work for me. But I, I appreciate the value of audiobooks for people who commute or who just read for themselves. You know, it's a very different thing. Maria Popova, I'm so excited to have you on. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? You did, unlike most people. So Is that, how you. do they usually say it? Popova. Popova. Yeah. Which Maria Popova. No, 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 nope. <laughs> Maria Popova, just absolutely thrilled to have you on, and, and you really do produce this gift every day for, for so many people. I have friends of lots of different ages oh, and family members. Thank you so much. Um, who, who rely on your, your beautiful writing, and again, I, I read it the same way that I read The New Yorker. I look forward to it every week, so I'm really grateful for it. So thank you for being here. And thank you for having me, and thank you for filling my morning with stimulating material. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, I will see you soon. Get back to work. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Employee of the Month show. Do come to our January 8th show at Joe's Pub in New York. If you cannot come, send friends. Actually, Maria will be there, so you can say hello to her as well. Thank you so much to Maria Popova. I just want to do a shout-out to my editor. Thank you to Ian Mazoff for doing such great work. And thanks to all of you for listening. The website is employeeofthemonthshow.com. Check it out, donate, and come back for more. Bye.